0: Good morning, really good to be with you again this week. Like Luke said, if you've got a copy of God's Word, you'll want to turn to Mark chapter 2. It's also up on the bulletin for you, on the projector for you. You may know that Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It's only 16 chapters long, and it's very fast-paced. In in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is constantly on the move. In fact, you'll notice that the transitions throughout Mark are often signaled with the word immediately. Immediately. Jesus is always moving on to the next thing in the book of Mark immediately. Mark really highlights the urgency of what Jesus came to do. Jesus, throughout the book of Mark, is in a hurry on the way to the cross. He's constantly focused on, on what he came to do to bring forgiveness to people through his death on the cross and through his resurrection a few days later. We see the cross really come into focus at the end of the book of Mark, but from the very beginning, we get glimpses of what some theologians call the shadow of the cross or the looming prospect of Jesus' death. It's as though Jesus is constantly aware of the cross and what's about to take place even early on in his ministry. And we see such an instance in our passage this morning. As Jesus offers a man forgiveness, the shadow of the cross really looms large because uh, it's going to take the cross in order to offer this forgiveness that Jesus wants to bring this man. Jesus knows this, but he offers this forgiveness anyway. He offers it to anyone who wants it. To see what I mean, let's look at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. And he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word, thankful for the way that it shapes and forms who we are, thankful for the way that it shows us Jesus and all of his glory and beauty and all of his love and compassion. And we pray that we would see him that way this morning. That we would see Jesus and that Jesus would set us free. We pray this in his name. Amen. So last year there was a blog that I would check out every once in a while. And it was a blog entitled Mundane Faithfulness. And it was an online journal of a woman named Kara Tippetts. Some of you have probably uh, trafficked uh, across this blog. But Kara used this blog to really document her battle with cancer. She was in her mid-30s when she was diagnosed with cancer, and she used her blog to really convey hope and love in the midst of what was a deep grief and deeply challenging time in her life. Carol was a wife, and she was a mother of four small children, and it was always a bittersweet experience to read her blog. There's nothing really that can sober a person like coming face-to-face with mortality. Reading Kara's writing sobered me because it forced me to think about how short life really is. I was forced to think about what death looks like because she would post pictures uh, of the challenging days that she had on her blog. I was really invited to turn my attention uh, to what's really most important in life as I read her blog. And these posts got especially sobering toward the end of her life. And she died last year at the age of 38. And reading her blog gave me perspective. It reoriented me to what is important. Anne Lamont, who's an author, points out that uh, the perspective that dying friends can bring in her book, Small Victories, where she says this with a bit of humor. She says, the worst possible thing you can do when you're down in the dumps or bored is to take a walk with dying friends. They'll ruin everything for you. They bust you by being grateful for the day while you're obsessed with how thin your lashes have become and how wide your bottom. Now, reading Kara's blog kind of felt like this for me. I mean, it put life back into proper perspective. I realized that the things that I often worry about, the things that bother me most, aren't really as important as I think. Reading her blog made me more thankful for the good things in my life, health, family, friends. Her her blog invited me to change my perspective and, and to focus in on what's most important in life. From time to time, being sobered is a really good thing. It's like being shaken and and being put back on track. And this morning, our passage that we just read from Mark can have that effect on us if we understand it correctly. Has the effect of shaking us and putting us back on track. This passage that we just read is meant to sober us in some ways, to change our perspective, to get us to focus on what's most important. See what I mean? We're going to be looking at this passage under three different headings. First, we'll see what we want. Then we'll see what we need. And lastly, we'll spend a few minutes looking at the one who provides. So what we want, what we need, the one who provides. First, let's see how this passage highlights what we want. It's helpful to get the story uh, in your mind. Uh, Jesus is teaching in a house, which is likely his own home, the place that he stays in Capernaum. And the place is packed out. People are coming from all over the region because they began to hear hear about Jesus and they came to listen to him teach. And if you think about it, it makes sense because Jesus' message was unlike anything that anyone had ever heard up to that point. Some were likely there to see what the big deal was. Others were there probably to get some sort of inspiration. Others were there in hopes that they might receive healing from Jesus. And we also see in our passage that in the crowd that day were the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And in the midst of all of this activity, in the midst of Jesus' teaching, there were four men who brought their paralyzed friend in order to be healed by Jesus. The house was so packed, though, that they couldn't get to Jesus. The house was so packed, they couldn't even get Jesus' attention. So they get desperate, and they climb up the roof. Houses in ancient Israel in that day and age had flat roofs and they had external staircases so uh, these people could gain access to the roof. And so these men carried their paralyzed friend up to the roof and began to dismantle the roof above where Jesus was teaching. Now, can you imagine what this must have looked like? I mean, what if that were happening right now as we were sitting here today? Dust began falling on Jesus. Large chunks begin to open up. Sunlight begins to stream through the roof where the hole's been opened. And down comes a man on a mat being lowered uh, by his friends above. I mean, it would have been a crazy scene. And the man's lowered down in front of Jesus. And what we see from Jesus would have been pretty bizarre. Because what we see from him is that he sees the man in front of him, and in verse 5, Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, that's not exactly what this paralyzed man is looking for. I mean, not exactly what his friends expected from Jesus. In fact, it seems that everybody in that room knew what this man wanted except for Jesus himself. This man didn't come asking Jesus for forgiveness. I mean, it was obvious that he came for healing. He came so that he could walk again. And he hears Jesus say something about sin and forgiveness, and he likely thinks, wait a second, can't you see I've got a more important problem here? But Jesus in our passage is implicitly saying, no, you don't. I mean, this man wanted to walk again. I mean, of course he did. He likely thought, if I could only walk again, then life would be good. If I could only walk again, then I'd never be unhappy. I'd never complain. Everything would be right. But Jesus looks at this man and says, son, you're mistaken. The roots of your discontent go much deeper than you think they do. Walking won't really satisfy you the way that you expect it to. But you and I really can't be too harsh with the expectation that this man has because you and I live with this mentality all the time, don't we? I mean, we think to ourselves, if only I could get a better job. Or if only I could have a more extroverted personality. Or if only I had a different body. Or if only my family got along, then life would be good. Then I'd never be unhappy. Then I'd never complain. Everything would be right. We think these things will bring fulfillment. And as we do, we're looking to these things to save us looking to these things that we really want to to, to bring rescue for us. Now, we would never articulate it that way. We'd never phrase it that way. But we're looking to these things to bring wholeness and restoration to our lives. And on one hand, if we don't get them, then we're unhappy and we're angry and we're empty. But on the other hand, sometimes we do get what we want. And we realize that they don't really satisfy us the ways that we thought that they would. And we grow bitter and angry too. The idea, This idea is articulated really well by a lady named Cynthia Heimel, who used to write for the Village Voice. Uh, and the Village Voice is a guide to news, music, and culture in New York City. And over the years, Cynthia had known a number of people in New York who were struggling actors and actresses. Not hard to believe, living in New York City. And they were working in restaurants and trying to make ends meet. And, and then, sometimes, the people that she knew would become famous. They would hit it big. And when they were struggling to make ends meet, they would say things like, if only I could make it in the business, then I'd be happy. But she found that once a struggling actor or actress actually made it, once they made it in the business, they were almost always unhappier than they used to be. She said this in one of her articles. She said, I pity celebrities. I really do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. In the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened. And nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment made them miserable. She was sorry for them. I mean, they finally got the one thing they thought would make everything okay, and it didn't. And she continues by saying this. She says, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish. I mean, we think we know what's truly going to make us happy. I mean, we think we know what's going to satisfy us. If we'd only have a bit more money or a thinner body or that person's acceptance, then we'd be happy. But Jesus comes, and in this passage, he tells us that our problem goes much deeper than we think it does. It goes deeper than money or body type or acceptance. We need to change the very thing that our hearts want most. It's a deeper issue. And so let's take a few minutes and look at what we really need. I mean, Jesus is the one who knows what we actually need. And Jesus handles this man's paralysis by forgiving him. Because Jesus knows that forgiveness is this man's deepest need. In a sense, Jesus is curing this man at his roots he's giving him something that's going to completely fulfill him and bring him lasting joy. I mean, you likely know this, but according to the Bible, sin's the root of all the problems we experience in this world. I mean, relational breakdown, self-doubt, disappointment, struggle, sickness, death, all of these things occur in this world and in our lives because sin has entered God's good creation. And Jesus knows that this man's deepest need is freedom from sin. Rescue from the slavery that sin brings. Now you might be thinking, did this man do something in order to deserve to be paralyzed? And it doesn't necessarily mean that because this man sinned, God was punishing him with paralysis. We can't really make that claim. That would be dangerous to say because of certain sins you do, God brings certain um, uh, uh, specific judgments upon you. But we can say that it's because of sin in general that this man suffers. And, And so Jesus goes for the actual source of the sickness in this passage. He wants to bring a complete cure to this man's life, not just provide temporary relief for his symptoms. Think about it this way. If you were to go to the doctor and they found that you had treatable cancer, they found that that you had cancer that could be cured, you'd want your doctor to do everything that she could do in order to go after the cancer itself, wouldn't you? I mean, it would be crazy for your doctor to simply treat your symptoms at that point. Maybe prescribing extra strength Tylenol for your headaches, Advil for your body aches. I mean, if that happened, the doctor would be ignoring the real issue while trying to relieve the smaller symptoms that you were experiencing in life. And that would keep you from being bothered by pain, sure. I mean, you'd probably get on with day uh, a little easier. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're going to slowly die because the real problem wasn't addressed. I and mean, you just address the symptoms. And this is common sense when we think about uh, something like disease and medicine. But it's really hard to grasp when we're talking about our souls. When we're talking about our hearts. Because more often than not, we just want relief. I mean, we want a quick fix. We want the symptoms to be taken care of. This man in our passage wanted to walk again. Often we just want the relationship with our family to be fixed. I mean, we just want the temptation to stop. We just want to like ourselves again. We just want to get along with our spouse. We want the symptoms to be taken care of. We want Jesus to give us these good things. And Jesus has the power to give us what we want. He's got the power to give us the security, the relationship, the recognition that we long for. He's got the power to give us all of those things. But he knows that it's not deep enough for us. We don't need a wish granter. We need someone who can take care of our deepest problems. One who can take care of our sin, the thing that distorts good things in our lives. You and I need to be forgiven. We need to be made right from the inside out, to be put right at the source of who we are. You and I want a quick fix, and Jesus comes to offer healing completely. He comes to offer to to take away the symptoms and, and even go deeper than that. Okay, finally in our passage this morning, we see the one who actually provides what we need. So we've seen what we want, we see what we need, and we see the one who provides what we need. Everywhere Jesus goes, there's lots of different people following him, listening to what he had to say. Like we said earlier, he had disciples, um, he had those who were curious, those who wanted to be healed, and the religious leaders of the day in our passage were also interested in what Jesus was doing. In our passage, we see the Pharisees and the scribes listening to Jesus, and as they're listening, they begin to grumble because they knew what Jesus had just done in this passage. By forgiving this paralytic sin, Jesus was claiming to be God. It's implicit, but we know that uh, that only the one who sinned against has the power to forgive sin. Think about it this way. Let's say one Sunday morning before service starts here at Christ Church, Um, that our good friend Tim Roundtree, one of the elders here, Tim Roundtree gets really mad at our beloved pastor, Luke Evans, your beloved pastor. And Tim gets so mad at Luke that he clobbers Luke. I mean, he breaks Luke's nose. Blood is everywhere in the foyer of the movie theater. It's just a big scene, and a few of us are here early, and we've got to pull Tim off Luke, and and maybe I'm here, and I separate them, and once tempers subside and everything's kind of quieted down, I walk up to Tim and say, I forgive you for hitting Luke. I mean, it'd be silly uh, because it's not me who was hurt. I wasn't the one who was offended. It was Luke who was offended. And forgiveness can only come from Luke at that point, the one who'd been wrong. Luke and only Luke has the power to offer forgiveness because he was the one who was injured. And by forgiving this man, Jesus is saying that he's the one who has been sinned against. Sin is against God, and only God can forgive sin. No one could have mistaken this. I mean, by offering this man forgiveness, Jesus is claiming to be God himself here in the Gospels. The Pharisees knew this, and it made them mad. Mad enough that they'll eventually want to kill him because of this sort of stuff. And Jesus knows that the Pharisees are thinking this, and so he asks them, he asks them a question. Which is easier? to say that your sins are forgiven or to tell this man to get up and walk. But here's the thing about Jesus' question there. I mean, on the surface, it looks to be much easier to forgive sin because that can't really be verified. I could say your sins are forgiven, and who knows whether or not that really happened or not, right? Anyone could say that. So in order to demonstrate his power to forgive, Jesus heals this man physically. And it's a small physical sign that points to the restoration that Jesus is going to bring. It's a small physical sign that that, that offers proof that he can actually do what he says. But Jesus knows in this passage that forgiving sin is much harder than making this man walk. Forgiving sin, going to the root of this man's problem, is much harder than just offering him healing. Because Jesus knows it's going to be infinitely more difficult to forgive this man's sin than to heal his legs. Because it's going to take a cross in order to forgive this man's sins. Like I mentioned at the beginning of, uh, of the, uh, this morning in this passage, we see Jesus here living and ministering under the shadow of the cross. He's forgiving sins and he knows what it's one day soon going to mean. He gets to the root of this man's problem, and he knows that one day soon that's going to mean separation from his father so that others might be brought near to God, so that others might be offered forgiveness and wholeness and true restoration. Look, forgiveness is always our biggest need, it's the thing that costs Jesus everything, and it's the thing that has the ability to really change our lives to change our lives from the inside out, to bring us ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in life. This man is able to use his legs again because Jesus will soon have his nailed to the cross. This man is able to walk back to his family that day because one day soon, Jesus is going to be ripped apart from the family that he has known from all eternity. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. On the cross, Jesus is restoring our hearts and our lives. He's getting to what you and I desperately need. Forgiveness, wholeness, restoration. And it's amazing if you think about it. The one that you and I have offended, the one that we've offended comes and he offers us what we need most. He offers us forgiveness. And even though it cost him everything in order to make that happen, he does it anyway. And we can live in light of that forgiveness, walking in freedom and wholeness, honoring Jesus with our lives because of what he has done for us. Let's pray.